in the, in the topic of work, um, of course, the Torah, towards the very beginning of the Chumash, begins with uh, telling us about the work that uh, the human being will do after the expulsion from Gan Eden. In Gan Eden, we have the term we have dealt with Shamra. Um, but after the uh, taking of the forbidden fruit, the Torah says that uh, Adam is sent and, and Chava are sent out of uh, Eden. And we're told there that um, at the end of the third uh, Perek, we're told that Hashem Elokim Gan Eden, in chapter 3, in the 23rd Pasuk, So God sent out uh, them from Eden. He says, to work, to till, to work the, the earth, the soil, from which from which he was taken. I think it's a very interesting uh, idea that sent to work, in particular in the beginning of the Chumash, the Adama. When I was in Israel a few weeks ago, a friend of mine was talking about the Chumash. He said that in the next chapter, when Cain, after Cain kills his brother, and God says to Cain, what have you done? Uh, and Aurora uh, Tomina Adama and then Navanad, you're going to wander over the face of the earth. Navanad and Cain says to God, "My my punishment is too great." You've chased me from the face of the earth, and from your face I will be hidden. And then the Chumash says, strangely, in the next story, next story in the Chumash, Cain goes off and he lives in the land of Nod we're told he's the builder of cities my friend said to me you know it sounds like, what does it mean so his suggestion was that God is present God is present in the God is present on the earth but in particular God is present al Adama when Cain goes to the city, he said to me, he leaves the Adama. He goes to a city. And in the city, which is a, basically a, a human construction, the God is hidden. So I thought that was actually a very interesting idea in terms of the biblical view of, 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 of cities. But for Mary, but I also wanted to mention something about the idea of, 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 of going back to the, to the earth, of working, working the earth from which you are taken. What is the idea of that? Is there some positive way to view that statement we know the Torah says and we know that you will toil you will labor which I'm not sure that is proscriptive but it's certainly descriptive of certainly most of the world and for most of human history but is there something positive to be said of working the, the earth from which you are taken I wanted to suggest at the outset maybe there is something about that the idea of working the earth in which you are taking means, maybe from the positive side, is that when you are working, the kind of work you do, you are ever mindful of, of from where you come. That is to say, of course, of your own mortality. As the Torah says, afar afar tashuv, I would say you are mindful of your own, of, of your own, uh, your own uh, humanity. And I think that the curse, which may not be, it's not only a curse, but a 
can be seen from both the negative standpoint, but there's a positive side to it, as is the whole expulsion from Eden. You know, the idea of, I think, to begin that, to ask ourselves the question, uh, are we in a place which, in which our own, which we are contact, which we have contact with, I would say, our, our own humanity, but also with humanity in general? Are we working in a place that allows us to think, broadens our understanding of what it means to be human and what it means to to work? And the word avodah means to work, it also means to serve. Is this a place which allows us to serve humanity in any way? Is it a place which is, you know, deepening my understanding of what it means to be real? A human being with all the limitations that we have, and uh, as a human being, Am I moving forward, or is, is this a place which is stultifying, which, which actually prevents me? Let's, yeah. That's, I think, helpful, because we were, last week we were struggling with that dichotomy between sort of what we might call either helping professions or professions where it's easy to connect and say, I'm doing something, you know, I'm contributing, and professions where um, you know, you're sort of a, a you know, clogging machine, for lack of a better term. Um, so this actually diminishes the severity of that distinction, I think, because you can be doing that irrespective of substance, perhaps. Well, there's no doubt. I think that, look, some professions lend themselves, I say, to very easy, in other words, if you're a doctor, let's say, you know, and you are in service of people who 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 are ill, I think there we understand that that kind of profession fits in very well with uh, you're helping people who are who are in distress, etc. And that's you know. But I, I I mean I I like I appreciate what you're saying, and I would just want to add that I think that most professions, if not all, there are always opportunities to help people. I mean, if you have a, a particular expertise, um, you can be an accountant, you can help people enormously, and, and you can help them solve all kinds of financial problems they may have, help them plan. Um, you know, those kind of professions, I think, certainly lend them to... There are other professions which are not glamorous, but, you know... Um, if you pick up... If you're a sanitation worker uh, and you have a few blocks, you pick up the garbage every day, one way to see it is it's a disgusting job. But let me ask you, how would, would we function without sanitation workers? They're more important, frankly, than, you know... Who asked myself the question, you know... What's more needed, a sanitation worker or David Silber's terrorist? You know what I mean? It's a good question, actually. And uh, so I think that uh, I, I think you make an important point. Um, that's I think it was an interesting idea about cities, actually. The, this, the idea of the city as being a place which is a, a human construction. And the truth of the matter is, and when the Torah speaks about building, for the most part, and maybe human history speaks about the great builders of history. You know, uh, in this year in Israel and not far off from uh, Herodion, Herod's little, one of Herod's little uh, constructions. And yep, he, built, he was one of the great builders of the Jew, of Jewish history, maybe the greatest. He was also a terrible monster. So I mean, is there a connection there? But in any event, um, it we come back to this idea of building cities, which is interesting. So Cain says, I'm, I, I will be hidden from your face. And he goes off and he builds a city I would say Cain in the Chumash is, is all about civilization. He's the father of civilization. He's a builder, he technology, music. The line of Cain is all of these things. And Chumash is, I think, raising the question about, about 
human creation, to what extent it, it, is, it is, can be in the service of, 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 of humanity, the service of God or not, that's really a related question, but not what I want to focus on this evening. What I wanted to focus on is the text, uh, piece of the Chumash that is in the middle of Sefer Shemot, which is about the Mon, actually. The story of the, uh, the laws of the Mon, the idea of the Mon, which appears in the Chumash in two significant places. One is in the middle of Sefer Shemot, and the other is in Sefer Bamidbar. But before you get to the Mon, I just wanted to frame it in the following way. And that is, if we think about the book of Shemot, the book begins with uh, the story of the bondage in Egypt. And uh, it, just, it tells us that Paro uh, is concerned about the growth of the Jewish people. So he sets out to limit the growth, and he sets out to, uh, to weaken the people and to, to enslave them, ultimately to, uh, to, to kill a good portion of them. And this new king, who doesn't know Joseph, says to his people that the children of Israel are multiplying, Ravi Yotsumi Menu. We have to figure out a way to, to, to have an Yitzchak below, lest they multiply. And they'll join up as a fifth column, rise up from the earth. And the Torah says, So first he appoints over them taskmasters. At, at Piton Viet Ramses, he, 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 um, they set over the taskmasters to oppress them. They built, here they translate garrison cities, or maybe the store cities that we translate for Paro, and the Torah mentions Piton in Ramses. That's not, but it doesn't work. Even if they're oppressing them, Israel continues to flourish, and then they take the next step of beginning to try to kill the boys and, and, and kidnap the girls. That's the idea, and that too seems to be thwarted to some degree, and that's, a, that's the story in the beginning of Sefer Shemot. So we hear what the book, the book begins with, with building, and it begins with uh, work. The, the word Avodah appears five times right in the beginning. Right? Vayavidu Mitzrayim et b'nei Yisrael b'farech, vayamorit chayim ba'avodah kasha b'chomer uvuvenim b'chol avodah ba'asadeh kol avodatam, asher adu b'hem b'farech get back to the idea of parech later in work which is very important but here we have the idea of avodah it starts with inui and then it segues into avodah inui and avodah we read it last week in the parsha are two of the three covenantal terms promised to Abraham about the land the preconditions to possessing the land are to be enslaved and to be uh, tortured inui and avodot so the question is and that's how the book begins the book ends with work. In fact, it ends with building. In fact, 12 of the last 15 chapters are all about building. This is the Mishkan. The, the instruction to build the Mishkan, the building of the Mishkan, it's a building project. And I think one way, good way to begin this is to ask ourselves the question, what is the difference between working for Pharaoh and working to build the Mishkan? What is the difference? What, what, what differences emerge from the Chumash? And once we get that frame, then I think it would pay for, for a little bit to look at the Mun story, which is also about work, about going out and gathering. Um, the Mishkan, it strikes me, and I'll just say a couple of things, and please, if you have other ideas or whatever, speak up. It strikes me that there are several important distinctions between the Mishkan on one hand and working for Paro on the other, and I think these ideas may be relevant to our different situations. Uh, 
Yeah. Right, so I think you made two, two different points. One is that in the Mishkan, there's an emphasis upon donations. In fact, you look at the Mishkan, the, one of the key words in the Mishkan is the Hebrew word nadav or nadiv, nadiv lev, nadava baboker baboker. So there is a sense of voluntary. Actually, the entire Mishkan is essentially done through volunteer, voluntary contributions. That right away is a difference. That's number one. Number two, you make a second point. And in the Mishkan, there seems to be an emphasis on different people doing different things. Prophet Betzal and his little crew, there are the uh, men who do one thing, the women do something else. Maybe they're going to see him, I hope. So it's basically, it's an individuation, as you call it. People have an opportunity to do what, you know, to, to do their own thing, as it were, all in, and in, in, a, in a voluntary basis. Outside of the half shekel, there's no uh, mandatory contributions. And that's, here it's obviously... There is a, it's, it's, there's coercion. Vayavidu Mitzrayim. Okay, those are maybe two points. Yeah. Is there coercion in a way by God also? Like the Adon and Evan still. The idea of, you know, the, the, even if it's artisans who are helping design and, and uh, create the, the Mishkan, I mean, they're unpaid. And, you know, it, it's labor that is expected from some group of people. I, I, I I, mean, I, don't, I certainly don't Let's put it this way. It's certainly true that God commands us to build a Mishkan. That part is certainly true. It's also equally true that it, it makes it very clear you want to build a Mishkan and ask for volunteers. Because you could raise the theoretical question, what if there are no volunteers? But it turns out that in the Mishkan, they have the opposite problem. There are actually too many volunteers. That's, the, which, that's very The Mishkan has the problem of too many people want to contribute. I think that's very striking. And uh, Moshe has to issue a a call by machana, as it were, to stop giving. But I, but it, I think John's point is that there's no sense that you have to do X. You don't have to do anything. It's true that at the end of the day, and I think you're making a different point, which is very important, and that is, you know, it's what God says later in the Chumash. Avodai heim asher tzeti otam yeretz Mitzrayim. They are my, they are my slaves, says God. So that I don't dispute that. I guess my question is, what is the difference between God's servant or Pharaoh's servant? <coughs> and yes, there's no specific command to any individual person, I'll tell you if they have shekel, that they must contribute A, B, or C. That's, so it's, the, it's put out there, but the community has a, has a, in its totality has this obligation to build a Mishkan. Yeah, what else? I mean, there's really two types of Abba that we see in Rishi. There's like, let, like, Adam Kama put in the, put in the beginning of the little, uh, little Shomer. Right. And then there's the pun, you know, the dad, Abba 
But what, what, what is bad about, I mean, let me just say, first of all, Not the hard, there's the hard. Let me, the word parech, let, let's, let's, yeah. let's, first of all, let me just point out that in the Mishkan, without doing a systematic analysis of it, the word avodah does appear in the Mishkan, but more often it's the word melacha, which is very striking. So there's melacha, sometimes you have a dead melechet avodah, a conjunction of the two, but for the most part, the preponderance of times it's melacha in the Mishkan, it's always avodah in the, in, when it comes to paro. You say that one is harder than the other, and I, actually that I think is where I wanted to take this. I mean, oh clearly, well the Torah says the word parech, whatever parech means, we'll get to one, there are a couple, several possibilities as to what parech might mean. I'll get to one of them in a minute. But there's actually a different question here about the avodah, which I think is, is a very important question and very relevant to everybody here, for sure. Which is, Paro is interested in, 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 in making them work. Paro is interested in these store cities. So if you go to work in the morning, you wake up at 7 in the morning, you go in, what are you doing? I'm here to build the store cities of Paro. But I think it turns out in the Chumash that actually he doesn't actually care about the store cities. The reason I say that is because later in the Chumash, there's a story after Moshe is uh, recruited by God to take the people out, so Moshe is, goes to Paro, I think it's Perakeh, and says to Paro that our God has appeared before us, you know, the God of the Hebrews, and God, uh, our God wants us to bring, uh, celebrate with God in the desert, which means bring sacrifices. Therefore, please let us travel three days into the desert. So on page, uh, chapter 5, page 121, Perakeh, Pasuk, uh, Pasuk Hay, uh, Gimel, I think, let me see, can you see? Pasuk Gimel, yeah? And, and we have to do it lest God strike us down Moshe says to them, what are you bothering the people for? There's so many of you, says Paro. You would cause them to stop working? Then Paro gives his commands. He commands his taskmasters, you know what? Up to now, the way they make the bricks is by give, they get straw and they make the bricks. So we have a new, a, a, a new edict now, which is they've got to make the same number of bricks, they've got to fill the quota. Tochen levenim titenu, but minus the straw. So therefore, the people have to go out and get the straw. But of course, you have to take time getting the straw. They can't really fulfill the quota. So the Hebrew taskmasters are being beaten up because they can't fulfill the quota. Everybody's screaming and yelling. That's what Paro does. i got to say, if I were Paro, I'd do something else. I mean, if I were Paro, it wouldn't be me, so maybe I'd do the same thing. I don't know. But if I were Paro, I'd say, hey, you're making 15 bricks an hour? you got to make 20. That's what I would do. Get more bricks, right? He doesn't say that, though. He says something. He, he, he commands them to do something where they can't even produce the 15 bricks. They, don't, they, they can't fill the quota. So, I mean, what, what, what do we derive from just... That's what he says, right? So, what that, I think, says to us is one thing for sure, which is, it's actually not about... The, it's not about the bricks. It's not about the building. The building, he said over them taskmasters to, to torture them, to oppress them, to civil it's a, it, it try, he tries to break. He wants to break them down. And the way he wants to break them down is by giving them work, which is very hard. 
But I would say something else about the work, which is very hard, which is, a, I think, a very core question for all of us, which is, it's work that has no purpose. As you go to work in the morning, why you, I'm, I'm here to build the store cities, and you know, actually, he couldn't care less about the store cities. It's not about the product. It's all about the process, as far as he's concerned. And that, I think, is in striking contrast to what the, we have in the Mishkan. But the Mishkan, which, which Chazal pick up, I mean, in Hilchus Shabbos, Moleches Machsheves. That's the term that's used. In fact, not just Moleches Machsheves used, but the entire emphasis in the, in the Mishkan. Bezalel is the, is the lead architect, and he's chosen Vachshov Machshavot, Lahorot. These are terms that you wouldn't expect to encounter uh, in, in, with someone who's a, who's a kind of architect or a builder. But we have this term over and over again in the Mishkan um, that he's, he's a thinker of thoughts or purposeful labor. Therein lies the difference, one I think a very critical difference between the work in the beginning, which is, it's not just hard work, because the truth is we're all capable of doing hard work. It doesn't bother us in the least. On the contrary, hard work is great. What is troublesome, though, is when you're working very hard, when in your own soul you believe that there's no purpose to it. In the, in the case of Paro, the guy who's, who's forcing you to work doesn't actually care about your work. Yeah. Making another suggestion, though, the, the, the fact that it, it said, Hain Rabim Atah, there's so many of them. Right. Maybe think about the employment rate, right? Like, I actually need their productivity to decrease. I need fewer blocks, because then I can have more slaves working for me. And that's, like, that's an interesting concept, I think, with, also with the, with the Mishkan, where, like you're saying, that they had so many volunteers, they said, no, 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 we're good, stop, stop volunteering. Where they could have said, okay, you know what, instead, you make half a panel a day, and you make half a panel a day, and you make half a panel a day, take your time. Everybody get involved in it and take your time. Whereas Farah was saying, I have so many people to do this, I'm going to, I'm going to keep them all doing busier work and not you know, optimizing their productivity um, and instead make it, you know, kind of keep, keep everyone unnecessarily busy. It, I think it's ultimately it's the same thing you're talking about, but maybe a different angle to it that it was like, this way I can have a million slaves working for me. You know, I, I don't get the sense that his problem is keeping them all busy. I, I, I presume that if they're two store cities, he could have made another two store cities or whatever. I, I, I don't get a sense that that's the problem. I, I think actually... What he seems to be saying is, I can't afford to. I, I can't afford this kind of thing because I have there's too many employees. It's one thing to give someone off for a week, but to give so many people off. I mean, obviously, he that's not his real motive. But I'm saying that he presents it as there's so many of you, and then he says very importantly, how could I permit you to? Moshe wants them to serve God in the desert, but in Paro's languages, Hein Rabbi Mata Amaretz Vishpatem Otam Misiv Otam. That language, I think, is in particular striking because it hishbat tem to cause you to cease from work. Of course, that the root of that is the word Shabbat. What do you want, a Shabbos, he says? You want to take a vacation? When you work for Paro, it turns out, there are no vacations. That's what he says. There's no, you can never stop working. That's very interesting. When it comes to the Mishkan, is precisely the opposite in spades because in the Mishkan, the one one of the most salient features of the Mishkan is that both in the instruction 
and in the actual building of the Mishkan, each time the Torah appends Shabbat to the Mishkan, both in the beginning and then Vayakhev at the end. As if to say, you can, I want you to build a Mishkan, but God is insisting that we not just build the Mishkan. God insists that actually there is a day where you don't work. Whereas when it comes to Paro, he insists that you must work. And it strikes me that something we need to think about here, not in terms of the value of Shabbat, you know, but in terms of, which is an interesting, but the relationship between working six days and resting on the seventh in terms of the work. What is, what is, the, impact, what is the impact on the work of not working? To me, that's a very interesting question because it's clear that in the, with Paro, he insists you, you can't stop. What is the value of actually stopping? What is the this idea of the Shabbat? How do you see that? What, what do you think about it? It's an opportunity to recharge your batteries and maybe even to stop to have the time to miss what you're doing so that you can get excited to go back to work. Okay, so you're saying it's, it's, it gives you strength to, to get going again. It's, it's a new beginning. Maybe it's also a, a time to uh, evaluate what we're doing when you stop as long as we're, we're involved in something you know when you're involved in something it's very hard to assess it and you know the assessing very often takes place only after you leave something either permanently or, or temporarily sort of like when Yaakov is talking to Lavan yes you, 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 you abused me and you enslaved me but it's only when he gets home that he can send the message to his brother Esau in, in Lavan Garti it was never my place but when you're there, we don't really, it's hard to evaluate it. So the idea of stopping then, maybe, apart from what you're saying about giving us the energy to pick up and to do it again and not falling into these patterns and that, but it's also perhaps a way to evaluate and to uh, assess what we're doing, which of course will be the last thing in the world that Paro wants. I mean, in fact, it's interesting in the Chumash as a small aside that Israel, for the first time, cries out from the labor, as we're told, after the king of Egypt dies. If we see the cry, not as simply a groan of pain, but in some sense, consciously or unconsciously, a kind of prayer, takes place when the king of Egypt, when, when there's a stop. When there's a stop, that's when, you know, it's like sometimes you a task you don't like so much, then you get a vacation. And sometimes people don't come back from the vacation. You know what I mean? You know, like that. Vacation is like, I can't go back, you know. Because you begin to assess what it is you're actually doing. So it strikes me that the book of um, Shemot, in any event, this book of redemption, which begins with building, it ends with building. But it strikes me that the bookends are all about the difference between working for God on one hand and working for Paro on the other. Yes, your point is well taken. Torah says you, we are we're still God's servants Avadim the Torah says in Vayikra but it strikes me there's some very salient differences I did want to mention one point which is very interesting came across a few years ago it's, it's, a, lot, a lot has been said about it which is that the work that Israel that Paro inflicts upon the Hebrews the Jews in Egypt is called Perech or Parech Vayavidu Mitzrayim et Bnei Yisrael Bifarech right um, so many years ago I came across the question what does Perech mean 
Because mean, one interpretation means crushing, crushing labor, crushing work. Came across a, 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 several years ago an interpretation that related it to a term, something called pirchu, which is the, the ancient Near East. Pirchu meant that you give someone work, let's say a free person, you give the work of a slave. You give the work to somebody that is inappropriate. I found that extremely interesting because the Medrash actually, when it talks about parech, it talks about giving men's work to women and women's work to men. It struck me that I'm not I'm not sure the Medrash was aware of pirchu, but essentially the two the two uh, interpretations I don't think are that far apart, and it confirms I think what I mentioned before, which is why would you give men's work to women and women's if a woman is particularly good at something, why would you give a guy that work? That makes no sense. If I have a company, I would everybody do what they do best. But if your goal is not to, to the outcome, if your goal is actually to break people down, there's nothing more frustrating than being given a job that you know you can't do. That's the point of the Medrash, and that is the point that's kind of inappropriate labor. So I think what what the you know I think these, this this frame is an interesting frame for us. Uh, you know, I came out with this Haggadah this year, if you saw it or not, but in this Haggadah, there's a small, I talk about work there, and I made one point that I thought was an interesting point about these two kinds of work, that the term Avodah on one hand, which can be, which I think in the, in the case of Pharaoh was a negative, and, and the, the kind of co- coerced labor, you're a slave, and that the Mishkan has an aspect of, 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 volunt- of, of voluntary work. You give people a choice, and it turns out, of course, when you, sometimes you give people choices, they do more. They 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 they, they surpass the quota. They they are giving too much, and that's the word nadiv or nadav and nidava. And I pointed out that what's extremely interesting to me is that in the story of King Shlomo, which is told in two places. First, it's told in the Book of Kings, and then we have a repeat of some of the stories or a different presentation in Divrei Hayamim. That what I find very interesting was that in Melachim it emphasizes the language that describes the building the temple is language taken largely from, from the story of Paro. Rodim Ba'am, uh, which you have later, Aramis uh, Kenoti builds, Mas, he has a, 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 tax, a tax collector, Adoni Ramaramas. And of course, his book begins by saying he married Pharaoh's daughter. So, Sivlotam is another term that's used over there. But when it comes to Book of Chronicles, suddenly st- the word Nadiv appears be- 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 over and over again. The Chronicle puts it in terms of voluntary work. As if the Chronicle, of course, we know, tries to change certain things that, for many reasons, not just to clean up the act of Shlomo and David, but for many reasons. That may be one of the reasons. But, but in any event, it struck me that Devray Haimin was extremely sensitive to this point that bothered the chronicler that the temple is built through forced conscription by making people do something which I think is problematic from many standpoints forcing people to do things they don't want to do which is you know which is both in terms of the outcome very often that doesn't work but it also raises a moral question about forcing people to do things I think has within it a, 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 a present certain moral problems I mean, work is, to a large degree, work things we, we have to do. We decide on to work, you know? I don't, if you're a lawyer, I don't like this case. I don't like the client. That's just too bad, you know? I mean, that's, that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work that way. So there is this aspect of when you're working, when you have a job, 
you know, we, 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 think, we, think, we think there's a bifurcation between work on one hand and slavery on the other. And there is a difference. A slave, a slave can't quit. A start is. But already the, the, in the Gemara, the way the Baalei Hatosvot were very sensitive to the point that it's not always such a, such a clear distinction. We, sometimes we sign on to something which gives us very little freedom. So, in any event, I think these, the frame of Sefer Shemot, I think, is in particular interesting. What I wanted to do in this, I don't want to monopolize, I'm much more interested in what you have to say, to be blunt about it. But let me just make one small point about a story that appears in the middle of this frame, which is the Mon. Because the Mon, the Mon is clearly a very important story in the Chumash, even though sometimes we don't get that sense. But if you think about it, it's a story that appears in two places in the Torah, and it has all kinds of interesting, I think, uh, pieces to it. Um, in the book of Shemot, very briefly, I wanted just to say two, one or two words about the Mon. The Mon, of course, is we, we leave Egypt, we, we cross the sea, we leave Egypt, we find ourselves in a desert, and then we, we do what we do best in the Chumash, which is to, to complain. Which, so we, we're crossing the sea, so we have one complaint. The first complaint is we have no water. This is a ch- the end of chapter 15, page 146. As soon as we cross the sea, that right away there's no water. We come to a place of bitter waters, story of Marah. And there the Torah says that they cried out and God told Moshe, showed Moshe how to sweeten the waters. And the Torah added strangely, Sham Mishpat So in Mara, there God gave them a Chokin Mishpat. Okay, we'll get back to that. Savu. And there God tested them. That's the first story. And then we have a long story. One of the longest stories, story of the Mon, which is chapter sixteen. And uh, chapter sixteen begins with a complaint again. Why'd you take us out of Egypt? To starve us to death? I mean what and then what's strange is, in chapter 16, in the fourth pasuk, Vayoma Hashem Moshe, lachem lechem in It's funny because it doesn't say Moshe said to God they're complaining. It even appears to be an independent statement by God to Moshe. lachem lechem in Behold, says God, I will rain down bread from heaven. So God is going to rain down food or bread from heaven. The people will go out and collect it on each day. In order that I test them. So this pasuk I think has several interesting pieces to it that I wanted to put out there about, this is, I would say, work. You've got to go out, you've got to, you've got to collect your food. The collection of food, we're told, is first of all, well, not first of all, but is in the Pasuk it says, they shall collect the food to Vayom Biyomo. You have to collect it every day. And we discover soon on in, this, in the Parsha of the Man that you actually, you can't save it. You, if you try to keep it over to the next day, it uh, spoils. And in fact, we are told explicitly, we, the Jewish people, are told explicitly not to leave it over. You're not allowed to leave it over. Okay? That's fuck. 
we're also told uh, that's point number one. So the idea is you 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 work, you collect the food, but the food lasts you for one day. That's number one. Secondly, we have the interesting. Uh, if I just throw me that box of tissues over there, we have the second um, interesting point that the the food which we're going to eat, in the words of the Chumash, is described as. I'm going to rain down mamtir for the word matar. I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. The word matar we know of typically as referring to rain, but the word matar in the Chumash actually doesn't always refer to rain. And here it refers to fruit, to bread. In the story of Sodom, it refers to the sulfur-like stuff that burns up Sodom. Um, in the case of the ten plagues, it refers to the hail, hail hailstones which fall down. And here it's here it's the man. So it's, it's an interesting term that God is mamtir, the bread. And then we have the question, that the purpose of all this, because presumably God could have fed us a different way, and the reason, uman anasenu, in order that I test them, hayelech petorati imlo. The purpose of the man we are being told over here is a test. What the Torah does not tell us is the nature of the test. What what exactly is what is the test over here? We have the word Nisa we have in this week's Parsha. Elohim Nisa Avraham. We have but the question is what is the test actually? Why is how is getting food in this way a test? So let me begin with that question and let's see what what do you how do you understand this idea of the of the test? The, the man is a test. What is this test? Roman anasenu. Literally, the word anasenu appeared earlier also. Sham sam lochoku mishpat, v'sham nisahu. Here God gave them statues and ordinance, and there God tested them. V'sham nisahu. In fact, it seems to be the key word in this, in, in, in this section altogether. Appears later on too. Masa umriva, and it concludes with amalek Hashem nisi. So the point is. The word nace and what, what else? Right, the man has sotet chem by Elohim. Yep, that, that's 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 true. I was that's correct. So the point is that it's obviously a central word, but how do we understand it over here in terms of the man, the man anasenu? This is how we're going to be sustaining ourselves during the entire desert experience for forty years. Till we enter the land. Yeah. Yes. Is there an aspect of testing their their trust in God, basically? With, with, with water and food, like they're going to trust that God will provide to them in these sort of intervals, and that if they go out and start collecting on, even though He tells them it's going to spoil, if they go out and start collecting it anyway, in sort of hoarding it, you know, based on the expectation that it might not. Right, so you're saying that the test over here is a, the purpose of the test is to instill in them a certain kind of, you say, a certain kind of faith, perhaps, um, sense of dependency in the positive sense, a certain sense of faith. Um, all right, anybody else want to? Yeah. It, it doesn't seem to me that that's the issue because it certainly takes. 
I mean, if, if you were uh, doing a Skinner experiment, you know, it would take a few days and you realize that this works. And, um, you know, so there, there's a repetition to it. The test is over. Um, there's more of the test planting and wondering whether things are going to grow or not. Um, it always seemed to me from the statement, from the Bar Midbar statement that you mind, um, uh, to teach us right. is, um, is a question of no matter what is sustaining us, can we always see it derived from God? Um, rather than the man is from God or whatever God says can sustain us. If, if, if it meant whatever God says to sustain us will, then God would have had us eating sand. would have been much more efficient. Um, but the question is, is, can you see yourself sustain day in, day out every day for the rest of your life by God's will, not your own will and not your own effort. That to me was the test. Right, so you're saying that you, you, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that you're sort of broadening this idea of dependency. It's not just about tomorrow and the next day, but, but to inculcate in, our, in ourselves a sense that we are, in some sense, never fully uh, in control of our own destiny. In some sense, we're always dependent on God. And, and that's the lesson of the desert you're suggesting. Well, the lesson of the mud in the desert. The mud in the desert, okay. Anybody? Uh, yes? Right. Well, the, the point of the matter is it's all Training exercise. Yeah. Anybody else have a different suggestion? Rashi had a different suggestion. Rashi is a totally different suggestion. Rashi says that the test, says Rashi, Rashi is about the whether they follow my Torah or not. So Rashi, and this is, a, I think, typical of Rashi in, in general, often true of Rashi, that Rashi says, will they follow my Torah or not, says Rashi, will they follow the mitzvot associated with the man, which there are two. One is, I, I, they, they go out and collect the man every day, but then later on there are two different commandments associated with the man. One is not to uh, go out on Shabbat. You get a du- you, only on Friday you get a double portion. But on Shabbat you can't go out and collect. So the Shabbat is here centrally in the man, which is very interesting because it's centrally with the Mishkan. And it doesn't exist with Pharaoh. But the other point, says Rashi, is not to try to hoard it. Not to, not to leave it over. The test is, will you follow this? I'm giving you the food, but you have to obey my rules about the food. Got to follow the rules of the, of the, you know, in terms of your work. You know, there are certain rules, what you do and don't do. 
and uh, these two these two rules that for Rashi are the test. I mean, if, according to Rashi, I guess we flunked the test because at least some of us, because some people hoard it, and some people go out on, on Shabbat as well. So we didn't do such a good job on this test. We got maybe a C minus or a D. I don't know, but that's what Rashi says. They, they yeah. Clearly, right. Right. So maybe that's teaching them, you know, that the the, the limits the, or the, the, you know, restrictions that come together with, it's learning the rules of the workplace, one might say, what is appropriate, inappropriate. But maybe it also relates to your point. Ultimately, it's, if God is giving us the food, we have to abide by God's rules, because after all, God makes the rules, since it's God's stuff to begin with. Um, the first interpretation, which has to do with that, the specific uh, rules, but rather, I would say, an inculcation of certain values. Dependency, the dependency in the narrow sense, or as Joe suggests, dependency in the larger sense that everything is dependent on God in, in one way or another. That's, that's basically what the Ramban has to say. And it's funny, Rashi and the Ramban actually have the same fight about the previous Nisayon as well. It says that in, they came to a bitter, the place of bitter waters, and Rashi says, and the Torah says, there God tested them. And Rashi, Shamni Sahu, Rashi comments that in Mara, following the Gemara, we got certain rules, we got certain laws. Choku Mishpat. What is Choku Mishpat? Rashi says it means the laws. This Chukim and Mishpatim. That's it. The Ramban says no. Choku Mishpat doesn't mean the laws. It means the way, Choku says, is the, the manner of doing things. Chukot Shamayim. It means, it means God is teaching them how do you live in the desert? How do you get water in the desert? How do you accommodate in the desert? How do you live when in a place where there isn't everything? How do you, how do you function in, in this? It, it, that's the Ramban. So it's very, very striking, actually. I don't, this is not about Rashi and the Ramban, but in general, there's two different approaches to everything. For Rashi, it's about the rules. It's always about the rules. The whole Mishkan is a B'dyevit, says Rashi. It never should have happened. It's after the Ramat says, what are you talking about? It's the, goal of the, the purpose is this. The purpose is to live the holy life, says the Ramban. The mitzvot help you get there. But they're not sufficient. You can keep all the mitzvot and be a bum. Says so they're necessary, but not sufficient. And Rashi it seems to have a different point of view. Just do what you're told to do. Follow the rules. And the other stuff is... He's not opposed to it, but but it's essentially the focus for Rashi is always mitzvot. Torah for Rashi is the observances, the commandments, etc. The Ramban takes a different point of view. But in terms of our issue over here about work, okay, so I I just wanted to just to raise a couple of questions here about about work, about its you know about being in the workplace, about what what we what what can we do with that with that environment which whichever environment we find ourselves in and no two environments are identical but how how can one transform the workplace or maybe improve the workplace and make it into something which has some spiritual significance or some meaning or as i said in the outset speaks to our, speaks to our deepest humanity and it strikes me that there are several in this verse there are several interesting issues that the Chumash is, is raising for us. Um, you know, I think, say Rashi, for example. Rashi says that 
as we're collecting our, our food, as we're working, we go out and, and, we, and we collect. It's interesting, you, you go out and you collect, you, you bring in. For the emphasis with Pharaoh, we also had to go out for Pharaoh because we had to get the straw. We had to forage for straw, right? There the Torah uses the term to be scattered about, right? To be scattered. It's here, it's to, to bring in. And uh, Rashi seems to say that in every environment you find your, yourself, you can see it as a test. And that is, do you function, I would say, do you function, in, do you function as one who is Holech Betorati Ogo? Every workplace has all kinds of challenges. And the question is, can you maintain a certain integrity? Can you live up to your own moral standards in situations which are not always, you know, optimal? I mean, here we're talking about a desert, so it's only not optimal. But for Rashi, that's what it's all about. It's maintaining your standards. Rashi would call that Torah, I think. And that's, that's, that's I would say. But that's, I, one can approach the workplace as, I suppose it's not optimal for some of us, but one can approach the workplace as a kind of testing ground. It's a testing ground. You, you work. You want to. You work to make a living. You work to support yourself. You work to support your family. Whatever it is, whatever the goals of work are, you work to allow yourself to do other things. But then the question is: this place that we find ourselves in for a good portion of our day, can we? You know, and it presents all kinds of challenges. Every workplace presents its own challenges. And the test then, Manasenu for Rashi, in, in, in following Rashi's spirit of Rashi. I don't think we have to construct that in a narrow sense. It's not, can I get kosher food? It's not the problem of work. Can I find a kosher restaurant? You know what I mean? But it means in terms of the interactions that we have at work. All kinds of interactions at work with our bosses, with those who work with us, with those who work alongside us, with those who, are, who we boss around, or whatever our situation is, you know, all of those relationships present all kinds of pressures, challenges, so one way to understand the, the test of the workplace, the workplace as a, as, a, as a testing ground, I'm not saying it's optimal, but I think that there's something to that, you know? And that to be, it, it, it's a kind of opportunity for us to hone our own, uh, you know, moral sense. And and there are always reasons at work, the terrible pressures sometimes, and it's tough to make good this moral choices and to, to do the right thing. Sometimes the right thing is a very tough thing to do. So those, you know, certainly I think that's one, given that fact that we're all in different places, I think that in, we have all different challenges. That's one way, I think, to see it. But the other way, I think, in more in lines of what you've been talking about, of, you know, creating, I would say, um, it's kind of uh, not, that, not, not the specific things that we're doing at work, but to, to, to build character, one might say. To build ca- work builds character. That's what that's what the Ramban is suggesting, and, and you've suggested it. Create a sense of dependency. Create a sense of. I guess the question for all of us would be: Is there? I don't know what all of you do, and I, I don't presume to answer this question. But are there? Is there a way in which we can see our work as a place which actually makes us more moral people? See, for Rashi, it strikes me as a kind of you know. Can you find you know some? Can you find kosher food at work? I mean, I think that's not the issue of work at all. But the, you know, the issue is that strikes me as it's a difficult situation. You live in a non-Jewish environment. 
op- work creates obstacles. The, qu- the question is, the other way around, is it does it create opportunities for us? Is there a way which we can see our place, our workspace? I, I mean, I think the question is a very important question. Everybody has to ask that question, but I don't have the answers to the question. And I want to raise one other question, and I'll stop this one. I'll please speak up. But I, I want to raise a more underlying question, since it's, you know, in the spirit of Talmud Torah, in the spirit of searching for the truth, there's something else about the man, which I think, which raises, I think, a very basic question for us, which is, the man is given every day. And this idea of, yes, it, it creates a sense, obviously, of dependency, and as Joe says, maybe it creates dependency beyond the man. Maybe it's a lesson understanding it all comes from God. I got all that. But there's also something else about, about this idea of working and, and eating every day and not having the food tomorrow. And that is, I think, related to something else about the man, which is you can't leave it over. You can't, I remember when I was in Israel, one of the years I was in Israel, going back and forth, it was the Shemitah year. And I happened to be that year living in Alon Shvut. The rabbi of the synagogue is Rabbi Yosef Svi Rimon, very fine human being. He's known for his work with Gush Katif, but he also was a halachist who was preoccupied, one might say obsessed, with the, uh, with the uh, Shemitah. He believes everybody, if possible, should keep all the laws of Shemitah. He's not in favor so much of selling the land of Israel or whatever, because that, but he understands that maybe, maybe there's no better answer. But in any event, in terms of our individual practice of people on this Yeshuv, he's very much in favor of trying as much as possible to keep the laws of Shemitah. The laws of Shemitah, if you actually keep it, are not so simple. And one of the problems with Shemitah is that if, if, if you actually believe that Shemitah exists, and the produce that you have is, is, has a certain sanctity. You can't just throw it out. You have to be careful when you eat. You, not to, you can't throw it out. Therefore, you don't want to leave anything over. I'm, the, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the pit, but the rest of it, you don't want to leave anything over. So I was like, sure, a guy goes over to this rabbi and says to him, you know, Rav Cook's Hector is good for me, you know, but, and he says, this is so difficult. You know, you, every time you eat, you can't throw anything out. So Ramon says to him, Forget about Shemitah. Why should you ever throw anything out? <laughs> you know, his point was, it's a pretty good point, actually. Why would you ever waste food? I mean, why waste anything? And, you know, the, the point I, I think over here about Dvayom Biyomo, which is very striking, is basically in the desert, you're given what you need. That's the point. You're not given what you want, because we want many things. But actually, you're given what you need. The purpose of the food in the Midbar is that you take what you need to live. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like some, either miraculously or, or some other way, everybody got what they needed. But you shouldn't take more than you need. Because if you take more than you need, it gets wasted. And you're not allowed to leave it over. And if you take too much, you're going to waste it. Because you can't save it. And therefore, you have to train yourself to take just what you need. And this raises to me a very basic question, which I'm not going to even presume to answer, but if you want anybody can chime in on any of these issues, which is, why do we work in the first place? In other words, we go into work, presumably to make money. That is to say, money is the currency that we use to support ourselves. 
I think the question we can ask ourselves is why do we need so much money? We're spending all of our time to make money and what is the purpose actually? The, you know, the, the Chumash seems to say that apart from the issue of, of dependency which is not to be self-sufficient in a certain sense but the man, I think, raised a completely different problem, which is the purpose was not to... The purpose of food is to allow you to live and to move on and, 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 and to continue to function. The purpose of going into the desert was not to eat. The purpose of going into the desert was to, to, to understand what it means to serve God. That is the goal of this, this book. The book ends up by God taking us out of Egypt in order to serve God. It wasn't for our own self-esteem it wasn't for our own, our own growth, per se. It sounds like God took us out of Mitzrayim to serve God. Now, if you're going to starve to death, you can't serve God. So you need to eat. But the goal is not the food. And I think, I think what I want to raise is a completely different question about values, which is, what does it mean to work endless hours to make money? I, I'm not talking about the waste of time. I'm not talking about, but what does it mean to have that if, if we're working, and it's not about anybody individual, but what does it mean in a society in which the goal of it is to make a lot of money? I mean, what does that say over here? What, what, is, what does that do to our souls, basically? I think that's the real question. That's the real danger to me of, putting, of being in a, in a place which the focus is on not just what we need, because we, need, we have needs, but, but, but what does it mean to, to amass, to spend that time amassing something that at the end of the day carries with it at best no value it, it, it doesn't have a value some negative or positive it's, 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 it's what you do with it but I think that is something that the, in, in this business I want to make one last point about the man why it's so important the man if you read the man's story carefully you see straight out the man is not just about having food it's not about food the man in the Chumash is a revelation God will appear God, God Kvod Hashem appears and the very Man itself, the man is an Omer. The Omer is a term that's associated with sacrifice. Not weaving it over is a sacrificial term. The term Mishmeret is a sacrificial term. There's something about the man that is a revelation. God is present. And that I think, that's really the goal. That through our daily work, we are actually able to see God's presence. That's why it's framed, that's exactly where it's right smack in the middle of this book. It's prelim- I would say it's, it's, it's a revelation on the level of our stomachs, but it's a revelation. And it, it, precedes, it precedes the Mishkan. So this, I think, is the goal. Now, there is the dream and there is the reality of each of us individually faces, and many others like us. And uh, we all find ourselves in different places, but I think that the questions... I'm, I'm more interested not so much with the answers, personally. I'm interested with the questions... I think asking the right questions is very important. I don't think anybody can answer anybody else either because each is in a different place. And so it's not about making judgments about the next guy. It's more about each of us individually. And I think in that sense, it's very democratic. I think someone who's a teacher, someone who's a social worker, someone who's a businesswoman, someone who's a computer expert, whatever it is, each, each place has its challenges. The idea that some professions are pristine, you know what I mean? I mean, the uh, best example, best would be 
some of the academies across our globe, you know, supposedly dedicated to the pursuit of knowledge. But sometimes in these places you find a lot of backstabbing and a lot of pettiness. Um, you don't expect it necessarily, but unfortunately, or within yeshivas, there are all kinds of fights, there are all kinds of issues. People are people. And I think the question about purpose, value, about what am I doing, how am I spending my time, I think that's, these are questions that the story of the man is, is raising in a very clear way. And, you know, Dvayom Biyomo, basically. It's, Dvayom Biyomo is, can be read in different ways. And one of the ways is this, this dependency on God, but also a, a devaluation. The purpose is not the man. The purpose is the, is, 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 is the revelation. That's all I want to say about this. There's more, but now... Let's see. Um, yeah. Well, maybe let's start with work as testing ground or as a place of revelation to people. And what are what do those tests look like? Do people encounter them? Last time we talked about entire professions, like sort of what side of the um, spectrum they're on. But I think within any job, and I, and I would encourage also people like uh, um, nonprofit work or even non-traditional work entirely comparison. <laughs> what, 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 are those, what are those sort of tests look like? Do you have any experiences kind of confronting certain moral hazards? I think it's important to consider that not no job is immune from these tests. Like, you know, there's not a job where you're automatically like good or where you're automatically doing damage. Um, this year, I, wor- I lived in Argentina for a year, and I worked in a, a Jewish daycare center for families with limited economic resources. And you know, the work with these children was really amazing, and the teachers was were really amazing as well. But um, there was also a lot of like lashon hara among the teachers. So they're doing like this incredible work and like you know really making a difference in these children's lives. But then they were like saying this about this person and then they don't like his clothes, they don't like what this person said. And um, it, was, it was so surprising to me that um, a place where so much like positive work could be done also had like this sort of negative energy. And um, it really goes to show that really no matter what type of work you're doing, you can't no one is like above or below like you know how you need to treat every person individually if you said something in that environment that would probably compromise your position among your colleagues right you do this sort yeah like I didn't feel like it was my place because you know they're there forever and I was just there for a year um but yeah it's just that what is that a test like what is the test not to speak or is there an additional test I just think I just think that, you know, people hear about what... The, and these women are doing amazing work, but I'm not going to say that they're not. But um, you, people hear what they're doing, and you automatically... I think someone said that last week, the social work, people have these assumptions, like, you're automatically, like, you know, a saint, and there are just as many tests, and you just have to... You have to conduct yourself just as morally, like... It's not, you know, it's not the same. Maybe it's also a way of, of being able to blow off steam, but, like, it's not necessarily easy in the role that you were in. And if these are men and women who have been doing it for a very long time, like, you know what, if, if their big sin is, you know, kind of making fun of things a little bit, but I guess it's like, it, it, it's a release. And then the next day they come in and help these families who otherwise would be without this help. I like, in, in my mind, I can, uh, you know, 
think of ways to justify that. Not that it says it's okay, but at least it says, let them have it. You know, let, let, let them have this in this way, you know, at least the next day they, their, you know, their, their mitzvah is, is of greater weight than their avera. But we don't really know, I think, in this world, which mitzvahs are greater right. than You're which right. You're absolutely right. And it, I mean, it definitely, like, impacted the environment. And, you know, the children are so little that they don't realize and the parents are gone during the day, so they don't realize. But um, it, I think sometimes people give themselves a pass. or like, you know, well, you do all this great work, so it's not important. But I think it's really, it is important. It's like um, an individual, that is their test, their test. And, you know, they are, they do work very hard, and they're probably not paid enough, and they don't get enough vacation. Let me ask you a question about that example, which I think is maybe everybody can talk to this. Let's say you had wanted to do something about this. Mm-hmm. Because there are other ways to blow off steam. You can go into the weight room. You can, you know, can run around the block. I mean, they don't have to. Is it, would it, would, was there somebody in your workplace that you could raise these questions with? Or was it sort of everybody's on their own? I'm getting a sense of talking to a few people that everybody feels they're on their own. I'm wondering in these work environments, is there a person or persons that you can actually level with and say I'm having issues with X, Y, and Z? Or is it sort of, are people afraid to do that? the people feel they're on their own with this problem? I would say that I would put some pushback on that and say like that's the true personal test. The true personal test is that can you overcome this idea of I might be isolated but there is this ultimate humanity that I truly value and believe and I might risk this isolation for something that I value is more is greater. Um, and I think that people ultimately some may isolate you, but mostly people end up respecting you for taking that step because it's that it's that whole idea of you know you hear someone screaming and you say oh someone else is going to step up and do it and someone else is going to take that step and and help right like if we the true test is on ourselves and how are we going to place these values is that fear of isolation going to outvalue humanity. Um, or are we going to say no? Humanity outweighs the fear of possibly being isolated for a limited amount of time. Um, because I don't think we fully isolate ourselves always if we're in the pursuit of humanity. Isn't there, though, also in, in our belief system, there is the concept of community? So, you know, like, like minions, however you define minions, right? Like, you have to have a forum to serve God the fullest way, right? And 
part of living in a community is accepting the flaws in that community. But if, but if the flaws of that community are breaking values of, that you hold at high ground, why would you want to be a part of that community? Right? Like, if there's a community that is constantly breaking a value that, or a part of humanity that I value, why am I going to stay there? I'm just belittling and I'm failing the test of what I believe and I'm pushing down my own beliefs because I'm fearing something versus making a stand and saying, this is not right. And either I'm going to try to force this change in this community or I'm going to find myself a new community to be a part of because it's not healthy for me. That's not the test for me, right? Mon was a test of the individual. It wasn't a test of the community. But I mean, certain in professions where let's say the underlying goal is something that's not like certain accumulation of business as much money as possible. Like if that's not eating, if your if your personal values aren't don't dovetail um, with those values, I mean, is that a time to just sort of stand up and say, I won't? Can you repeat that question? Is those kinds of those kinds of uh, taking those kinds of stands um, where you overwhelmingly agree with the place you're in and you have an issue with something in particular. It's sort of easy when you're kind of um, I mean, it's not easy, but um, uh, I wonder if those calculations might be different if you're in a profession where the, there are underlying values that just don't sit well with you and you nevertheless find yourself there for, for other reasons. Well, such as we're alluded to. Well, I think it depends on what you value more. If valuing money is more important than valuing those things, then you're going to stay there because if working and valuing money, then that's what you are putting, which is not a bad thing. It's just how you prioritize your values, right? That money is shared to stuck. And the cost of that is to spend eight hours a day or ten hours a day with people that you don't identify with and the practices so not immoral but worthless. Well I'm not saying that you should stay there. I'm just saying that like so someone values money over the value of of humanity or value of good qualities or whatever it is and but they're money choosing. is for humanity. What depends on how they're using it depends on how they I'm the best pirate the entire world. <laughs> okay? I kidnap boats on the open seas and I make millions of dollars a year and give every penny to <laughs> starving children in country. That's Robin Hood. <laughs> I'm a modern day but old school style. Right. Okay, fine. So that's what you value, right? I'm not going to join your ship. <laughs> <laughs> The but if you join my ship, no, you will make me a better pirate and more money will go to the starving children. But I don't value stealing from other people. I don't value that higher than I value to... I can also give to starving people without breaking the value of stealing from other people. But I can help you give more. But I, you know, I'm breaking a value that I that I put above it, right? Yeah, I'm... I value is more or less a preference. It may have moral value maybe some other kind of preference. Something is prohibited and something is wrong is wrong. It's a question of 
as saying, should somebody commit a crime in order to feed hungry children, the question would be wicked. Saying for God and defying God and doing something that is primitive. The question of value is saying I want a certain kind of life. I can lead a decent life even though I'm in an indecent environment, unpleasant environment. I don't do any crimes, but it's not a life that I really care for. It's a life that's impoverished spiritually. So in Yahadut, in common sense morality, it's a very small distinction of somebody acting against the law, acting against the duty. And the question of value. The shifting of all moral language into language of value, I think, is very dangerous. If, if you're suggesting that having a useless life and a life that you're not satisfied with is fine so long as you haven't violated a lockdown, that that's a kind of life worth living, um, I, I don't think that's neither a question of value. Consequences of that life are worthwhile. But how do you know they're worthwhile? I mean, you make money, you give it stuff. Like, are you becoming a better person? Right. Like, what's what's the? I guess then that goes to a deeper philosophical conversation of what's the purpose of being in existence. Right? Is it to just give to that? And that's a totally different conversation of what's the purpose of being here. Is, is it to give Sadaka or is it to be the best version that I can be personally here on this world, which might include giving Sadaka? Just a plug for the last session. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll discuss <laughs> conflict and the application of our personal values to resolve these kinds of conflicts.
you know, the Jewish community, I don't know what it is exactly that. That's a big, I don't know. That's a, that's a big one. You know, the man is an individual. That's, that's a very good point. No, I was really asking a very okay. important point. Yeah. When you make a decision how much money you need, there's a certain amount of money that you figure out you need for subsistence. If you're part of the community, you may have other, other economic needs. Right. Raising children, tuition. There are a lot of things that go on where to a certain degree you're held hostage of other people in the community you're doing. You can defy it. Well, I mean, the, you know, we have the choice. We could be living at the rent that we pay in Manhattan or the out of boroughs, or we could, you know, all make our way out to the middle of Suffolk or the middle of Arkansas, and and you know, we could all like I don't I don't think I don't think the Jewish um, rules mean that we have to. Uh, you know, be monks in a monastery, and you know, or or like that 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 concept of zeros of, of you know, like going to, to the extreme is not, I think, a goal in Judaism. I think, um, at least the way I you know I live comfortably with my with my belief in God is that it's it's okay for me to uh, make and spend more money than other people and. I know make a lot less than, than a lot of people also. Um, but to live in this community like you're talking about, not it's not cheap. Um, and I, I I chose that. I chose <coughs> to pay more to eventually when I have kids send them to you. Um, and I, I don't think I, I, I believe that is that is right. That it's not even that's not wrong. I believe that it is right to make that choice to I, I really think to what um, John said um, uh, in terms of this like unknown feeling. Like I don't feel like it's a choice. I don't feel like I'm making a calculation and thinking this is sort of path to go down and make a lot of money versus not being. I, mean, I just feel like who knows what you'll need. Like who knows maybe a child who's disabled or you'll have like. I just I feel like I grew up in a climate of fear that you just have to have. Like you have to sort of earn as much as possible. The rainy day fund that you have to look up. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, the Holocaust or something. <laughs> and, um, and, right, and so this idea that you can make certain choices and live a non-materialistic lifestyle, I, I was always taught that, that those are very imprudent choices. But that, you know, um, it, it contradicts the philosophy of Mont, which Rabbi Silver kind of grounded us here in that, the idea that, let, let alone, we know we're not taking the taking it with us to the grave, sure. right? And we, Jews of, of almost all other belief systems, we are very clear. You are you are dust to dust, and you go with nothing, right? And money even is, at the end of the day, you have no more. So there's there's no saving whatsoever. Um, and so maybe that's, that's part of the Nisayon. It still is, you know, yes, as Joe was saying, that... that you get used to it after 40 years. You kind of come to count on it. You're still believing that 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 will come to this thing. Um, you know, as opposed to that Holocaust mentality, which we have grown up under, of maybe this I'll I'll eat only half this rotten potato just in case I don't get it tomorrow. You know, and so 
the idea of saving up maybe a more modern Jewish construct after we, you know, we've been burned before, and not just, I mean, you know, throughout 3,000 years we've, we've been taught maybe. I think that saving has to do with Holocaust. I know Holocaust people, they're Holocaust, people with Holocaust families, me, mother, don't waste. I know people, to the contrary, because they underwent that, they don't want to feel people do what they want to do and you have rationalization I think the structure of the economy if I don't save money who's going to take care of me when I'm well when 80 I'll still be teaching when I'm 95 and I, and I really only teach you part time what happens you have to think about those issues. Yeah, it's it's structure. Foolish. Yeah. You should should something that's very relevant. You should should help your people who are now uh, missionizing for life insurance with all these avechim. You sitting in Colo, they have large families, they don't have life insurance, something happens. And of course, they trust God, which means they trust the community to take it, to clean up after. And now, among the Shishima, they're saying you can't do that. You can't make yourself a burden to that way. But that touched me. That's much more close to the bone. There are psychological issues people might have going back to 60 or 70 years ago. Yeah, the, the, the question that was actually intended to raise was not about subsistence living. Um, was not about, you know, are we living hand-to-mouth day-to-day, and let's assume that everybody has their calculus about what they might need and for themselves, for their families, rainy day funds, illnesses, who knows what could happen. I was raising a different issue, which is that in some of these workplaces, what I've seen is that the danger uh, often is that we begin to think of money as not just a means to an end, but somehow, the money becomes an end in and of itself. I call that Avodah Zara, basically, which is it's confusion of means and ends. I mean, we all understand. I mean, I also respect that a student, actually, a non-Jewish woman came to Jewish for many years. She died a few years ago, very special person. She's part of the Catholic worker, and she had no money. When I say she had no money, I mean she had no money. They give her the money away. She has zero dollars, zero. And they spend their time feeding uh, mostly illegal aliens and homeless people. And she spent most of the day studying Torah and teaching it. It's a very serious religious person. Came to Jerusalem for many years. But uh, I'm not talking about that. I have a lot of respect for that. But I'm not talking about that. Let's say we all have our calculations, what we might need, etc. Living in a certain community and all that. The danger that I've seen and what I'm raising over here is the issue of, of, of values, which is easily, I've seen situations where suddenly the money becomes important in and of itself, and I think that's a, that's a great danger. It's not the same thing as saying, I'm going to need X, I, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want a family, I want this, I want kids to day school, I want to go to Israel, I want to give tzedakah, that's, all that's great. I'm saying that, but the workplaces often are constructed in such a way that we, we, so, we sort of get into the making money, or certain professions in that way, and then I think that can be a and it, 
it's more about raising consciousness about these issues. That was my intention. It's not to take a particular position. How much each person needs is their own business in any event, and no one can speak for the next one. But, you know, the man reminds us about the end of the day. It's not about the man. It's to say, I think that's very important. Uh, Another question you're raising, which might be another good, th- which is a different issue about needs, and that is, what are the communal needs? I mean, the fact of the matter is, one thing, one nice thing about money is, it correlates typically with what people think is actually important. People will spend money on what they on what they care about, and they won't spend money on what they don't care about, which I think can raise a very interesting questions about where are people actually spending their money, and you know. Um, here, we're here on the Trisha, 65th Street, you know. You can walk downstairs and buy a $7 cup of coffee here. Mm-hmm. You know. Got to ask yourself the question, why are we spending $7 on a, on a drink coffee? But why are we spending $7 on a cup of co- coffee? I mean, and, I mean, that's a trivial point, but the bigger point is, in terms of needs, it would not be a bad thing to discuss. What actually are the communal needs? Is, is Jewish education a communal need? I mean, must the school have a $10 million gym? Etc. Etc. The cost of day school. Where's the money going to the day schools? Actually, is it going to the buildings? Do we need a fancy building? I mean, there are a lot of questions here about needs. I think as well. That wasn't my intention, but I'm just saying that you, what's been raised here, I think, is very interesting. About what do we really need? And that is the the man does raise that question. What what are what is a want and what is a need? And I think that's a good, a good thing to think about, maybe for the future. <coughs> 